I think there's a, just an acceptance that there's to be no more pipelines built here in Canada. I think that's just, uh, and I talk about oil pipelines. Hello and a warm collisions, YYC. Welcome to Mr. Jeremy McRae. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm great. You? I'm awesome, man. Welcome. It is very early in the new year, and that is relevant because this might be aired in a couple of weeks, but we're going to get into some predictions. We're going to talk about financial markets, what's happening around the world, what's happening here at home when it comes to an energy uh, perspective. So if anything changes in the next couple of weeks, that's my asterisk to say, hey, this was the 4th of Jan- or 3rd of January. So we're, we're very early in the cycle, but we're going to get into it. Jeremy, you're the director um, equity research at Raymond James. So, and with a focus on energy, I, I, I know, and that's what we're going to get into today. So I'll let you kind of give a little bit of the quick elevator spiel. Who are you? What's your role? What do you do day to day? And then let's, uh, let's get into this chat. I'm excited to have it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, managing director energy research here at Raymond James. Uh, so a lot of the things I do is advise pension funds, mutual funds, uh, brokers, hmm. um, what oil and gas stocks to buy here, uh, in Canada. And so, we cover the broad sector here, and if guys are looking to make investments uh, in one of the best performing sectors here over the last couple of years, I'm the guy they come and talk to here. So, nice. you know, a lot of our clients are, um, you know, U.S., Canada, Europe, uh, who are all trying to look for exposure to really an industry that we thought was more or less on the dead here uh, that has completely reemerged. And it's exciting times here again for the oil and gas sector. Oh, it warms my heart being very pro Western Canada, being very pro energy sector. My wife's worked in it for 20 years. So I feel I've had a, ring, a ringside seat and uh, one degree of separation. You can't live in Calgary without having the majority of people in your life working in the sector. Question a few years ago, it's dead. It's not coming back. Oh my God. Investors are running for the hills. Nobody can get money. No one wants to put money in. That doesn't sound like the story you just told. <laughs> no. And it, completely changed over the last seven years. So 2014, you have to go back to where we had our last big boom. And after that, uh, it, it was it was pretty dire here in Calgary for seven years. A lot of guys who were part of the patch, they went on and did different things. And for the guys who stuck it out, said, look, we can find our way here. Uh, we finally have. And with it's you look at the sector here today and versus where it was, you know, eight years ago, and commodity prices are back up to where their all times high were for Canadian priced commodities, just given where the foreign exchange is is is, is today. Okay. Uh, your profitability for the sector is much better. And a lot of the leverage that the companies had over the last several years has really almost all been paid off. And so the sector is a much stronger footings here going forward. And I think that's the big thing that a lot of fund managers are looking at saying you know what, maybe we actually do need energy here for quite some more period. You saw what's going on with Russia and energy security is becoming a much more important factor here. And here in Canada, that's what we have. Oh, I, I love it. And uh, yeah, higher profitability, kind of lower debt, uh, consolidation that's happened since 2014. It, do we also have a much smaller pool of viable options to invest in just based on where the sector was and a lot of that people leaving and moving on and quote unquote, as you said, do other things? Yeah. So if you were to go back to 2010, and I'm going to get these numbers a little bit off here, but you had around 450 public E&P companies you could choose from. You know, you would say about half of those were investable with that, you know, $100 million market cap or so. Today, that's dropped by about 70%. So it is quite a bit of consolidation that we've seen over the last decade. Uh, But for the better, though, you know, the companies that are involved here today, they're stronger, they have better access to capital, they have more inventory to go drill. And so as a result, you're seeing 
really just a better, stronger sector than what we've ever really experienced before. But you know, look at hindsight is is tough, and the, it was a it was a long several years here that a lot of guys went through some downturn where you just could not be seen as investing in the sector. Um, but how that's changed as the sector has been the best performing sector in 2021. It was the best performing sector in 2022. And you look at 2023 and say, you know what, there's still a lot of growth and momentum here. I, I think it, actually a good example is if you go back to the tobacco industry back to, in 1995, 1995, from from 1995 to 2000, tobacco was the worst industry you could invest in. This, this, that sector was down 75% from peak to bottom. But from 2000 to 2010, tobacco was the best performing sector for 10 years. And it was because they had profits and their free cash flow. And a lot of those profits got paid out in shareholder dividends. So you talk to different guys back in, you know, 1995, you know, 97, you couldn't um, you know, you know, pitch a tobacco stock to anybody because it was, well, we understand this causes cancer. And, you know, you look at the sector, you know, we're not going to be selling cigarettes here for the longest time. Um, but it was still a good performing uh, sector to invest in. And so you look at energy here today, and I think that's what a lot of guys were thinking, saying, you know, we've we've really hit, hit peak oil demand. You know, we're not really growing our demand here anymore. Um why would I want to invest in a declining industry? And and by far, that's been the pervasive you know viewpoint for the last few years. But that fear of peak oil demand is really causing a much more rapid uh, shift in terms of supply, where the energy producers see that peak oil demand coming as well, too. And as a result, they're not nearly investing as much into the sector as we once have. And so as a result, you know, you're having more profits, uh, you can re return those profits. And that's why you're seeing the stock prices of these oil and gas stocks go up. Which is interesting from the supply. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel. And I'm going to be bold in this conversation about the comparison mm -hmm. to the tobacco industry. <laughs> As somebody who didn't grow up in that space and goes, oh my God, cigarettes are bad. Why would I invest in that? Or why would I be part of that? But to talk about it purely from a profitability perspective and you know, the energy sector having such a negative bent from a environmental, we'll just talk about the, the, the ESG craze and I'll just call it that. Mm -hmm. You can't turn anywhere that you don't run into that three-letter acronym anymore. Where in 2014, I don't know if anyone I was talking to was really throwing around ESG as a term, but in the last 24 months, you can't escape it. But you've seen a lot of companies now taking ownership on their reporting and sharing, you know, I, I, my wife and I travel back East and oftentimes sitting around the table in Quebec, someone will make some off the comment uh, remark about, oh, the energy sector and how dirty we are. And then she will proceed to correct them politely on all the things that we actually do. So what role do you see that playing in terms of the story that's out there? Obviously, there's a financial story that says, no, 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 this sector is very good place to find returns. And by the way, we're also doing a lot of things that maybe weren't as bad as the media or the rhetoric was maybe leading you to believe. What does that shift into your world when you look at ESG and the onslaught of the importance of it? But also anyone I know in the sector in Alberta, they own that pretty hard and they do a lot of things that sometimes the, the media doesn't grab onto in terms of the positives. Mm -hmm. No, and, and you hit it on the head here because tobacco, for all of its ills, you almost have to separate the two. Is this a good stock or a good company almost in a way? Yeah, and yeah, there, yeah. there is a difference there. And I think that's the problem that energy and oil and gas companies faced here back in 2014, where I want to say we somewhat dismissed the whole ESG angle saying, oh, it doesn't matter here. It doesn't matter. Energy is important. We need this. And 
there's only over the last few years, you know, even actually maybe before that, we started to make the shift where there's an understanding saying, what do we need to do as a sector here to actually right maybe some of these wrongs that we did? And, you know, I guess you could have it. What are, what are the wrongs? You know, we didn't maybe have the environmental standards that we have today. And there's a number of, you know, things where you you look at the oil sands in terms of, you know, trying to reduce their emissions to basically net zero here mm-hmm. come 2050. A lot of the other conventional producers, uh, you know, all have, you know, big environmental plans in terms of water usage and, you know, the CO2. And there's a, there's a lot of things that I think the sector goes through that I don't think maybe the general public really, uh, you know, knows. You know, for example, mm-hmm. if I'm going to go drill a well here uh, and there's any spot of a bird's nest in the vicinity, drilling stops. We wait until, you know, the birds have have moved on before drilling starts. Like nowhere in the world do you have the environmental standards that this sector does now today. And I think that's the misconception that we never really, um, it's not promoted, but just there's a lack of understanding of actually how much commitment these companies do now have toward that ESG um, style and, and a lot of money that's been put into it as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, energy is important. We all still use it. Um, and you might as well. And I, I think that where the Canadian Energy Patch is trying to go is saying, look, if we, if you, we need to use oil, you might as well make it Canadian oil because it truly mm-hmm. really does come from, from some of the most uh, ethically sourced places uh, in the world. Well, that statement I've heard from a few people on the show say, like, the last barrel of oil ever pumped should be Canadian oil because it's the best. <laughs> it's the cleanest. It's the mm-hmm. most environmentally sound. It's the, it, has, it has the most consciousness to it when it comes to uh, other uh, other places in the world that we won't won't name in terms of point fingers. When you're advising, you mentioned, you know, advising hedge funds, advising, you know, global investment groups. When you're looking at people, when people, in, I should say not when you, when they're looking to hear, you've got conversations with people that are overseas in Europe. Is that story starting to get out? I was talking to um, Kevin Krauser from Avatar Innovations when he was at COP27. And I said, what's it like this year? He goes, well, they kind of hate us a little bit less than they did before. And he kind of said that a bit tongue in cheek (laughs) in terms of his comment. He goes, well, last year was rough. This year was a little bit less rough. So when you're looking at overseas investment into Western Canada specifically, is that story getting out or is that a story you're also telling or are they so enamored by the returns that they're maybe not asking that much as much as they were five years ago? It's a bit of both half and half. (laughs) There there really is an understanding that what it's like, you guys do have some strong commitments. We can see it in your plans. Almost every oil and gas company has a full 200 page ESG report that shows here's our improvement that we've done year over year over year. And it really is things that these companies have done to improve themselves just on, in terms of that ESG front. But the other side, though, is if there's one thing that a portfolio manager needs, um, he needs to make returns. And there's been a lot of portfolio managers who have lost their jobs, even in the last year or so, where they didn't invest anything in oil and gas. And as a result, their fund underperformed. They missed out. Their clients said, look, I'm getting a 15% return over here and I only got 2% over here. I'm switching my names. And I think a lot of these fund managers are realizing I can't actually influence the world and, and make it a better place if I don't have any money to manage. And so that's where you've seen this shift saying, maybe we need to have some oil and gas, but let's just make sure the companies that we are investing in do have an ethical bent to it. So that's where you're seeing this shift and it's becoming a little bit more 
it, it's, it's becoming more acceptable to to own it, and it can, you can even see it being on. Uh, you know, when I you know go marketing here for a few weeks at a time, uh, just talking to all these different investors, that the amount of ESG questions that come up is down quite a bit from where we were even six months ago, and especially where we were a year ago. So you can see the dynamics shifting here. Company these portfolio managers are more interested in the returns here almost today versus. The bit of the ESG angle, just making sure, am I investing in an absolutely good company? Almost all of them are now, so it's it's you know you can see that 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 shift that that mind shift is happening now. Jeremy, heaven heaven forbid that a balanced approach prevails. <laughs> we love extremes, yeah. don't we? <laughs> yeah, it's all this way. Holy yeah. shit, we missed the returns because we went too far to the one side. We got to go back to the other side. Anyways, I just I'm laughing a little bit. We're so predictable as humans, are we not? But anyways, that's that's yeah. the emotional side of of investing and in all the things we compl- we 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 complicate it with. Okay, so you're in Western Canada. Let's talk about 2023. Are we pretty flat? Or can we expect the same type of like even at the same prices? We are we're getting better returns because of the efficiency, because of the consolidation, because of the low debt, you know, kind of scenarios that we're talking about with our producers. Are we seeing more of the same in 2023? Because you can't really turn on the TV and not seeing the recession word everywhere you turn these days. Is that affecting the energy sector in Western Canada over the next 12 to 24 months? You know, the energy sector is the most volatile sector out there. And I don't even think anybody knows where WTI prices, oil prices are going to go. I don't even think the King of Saudi Arabia knows where oil prices are going to go here in the letter. <laughs> that's that's like a powerful, that's an interesting but, statement in itself. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so that's, unfortunately, when we look at the crystal ball, you know, what, what's going to happen with oil prices, I think is anybody's guess. Are we going to go into recession? Is the, is the global, you know, market going to go into recession? I, we, I don't think anybody has confidence to, make it better in that way here but the one thing that you can kind of look at here is you know you know oil prices will drive cash flows but there's also the multiple expansion that you could see with the sector here and i think that's actually drives more than half of your stock price performance each year anyway and i be my multiple is you still have guys looking investors looking at this sector saying it was you know last 2021 2022 this sector really has done well has anything kind of changed? And when you look at the multiple valuations that you could buy these names in 2021 and the beginning of 2022, we're looking at the same multiple valuations even here today to start 2023. So a lot of it is just because we've paid off a lot of our debt. We continue to pay off um, and build cash positions, actually. And you're not, um, as a result, of the, with the profitability still being there, commodity prices still could go down. But these companies are in such strong positions here, they'll just stop drilling if they're not making money. Um, and if the oil prices do go up, you know what, we'll just go drill a few more wells. So they're a bit more in the driver's seat where the the lenders aren't driving the you know, the, driving the bus here. So taking some of the volatility out of that by securing, and I know just talking to a lot of people in the sector, there is some companies that certainly a lot of people that I know feel are undervalued in terms of where they're producing, what their metrics actually are. There still is, which gives you a little bit of buffer for things to move without having a big negative impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, and the one thing that's really helping us here in Canada is just the foreign exchange rate, just given mm-hmm. that 75 cent dollar here, uh, you could go back to 2014, when the oil prices were, you know, running to $150 there back in the day, but that's when the Canadian part, the Canadian dollar was back up that par. Part. So um, even today, Canadian oil producers are still getting $100 prices, which is pretty much the same that we were getting back in 2014 when you look at it over the course of the year. So um, 
the only thing difference now is your productivity per well has doubled and your costs have actually probably come down by half. So that's where the profitability mm-hmm. for Canada has gone much better, where for companies in the U.S., uh, you know, not as much. And as oil prices kind of drip down to that $75 barrel mark, you're really not too much off their break-even prices at that point here, just based on you know some of the surveys that the Dallas Fed does with a lot of these energy companies. So you really are starting to put a floor in where WT, WT, WTI prices uh, you know really could go, and so that's what kind of gives me you know what with no debt here up in Canada and and the profitability here mm-hmm. for these Canadian firms, more investors are starting to recognize that, and that's why you're likely to see more capital inflow and ultimately your multiples expand here for these sectors. Which can by default take out some of that volatility you commented on by the fact of like, well, if that's where the US sits and that's kind of where that floor sits for even making it functional and we're already profitable based on that, that starts to, one might think, remove some of the volatility or potential volatility. Mm-hmm. No, and, and and the volatility is is a big thing. You know, you have a number of PMs saying, portfolio managers saying, how do I step into the stock here. I don't if I don't know if it's going to be down five percent tomorrow. You know, as we're airing this here today, uh, you know, the market's down five percent on average across the board here. Like there's a lot of that's a lot of volatility that the guys are worried about. But to be fair, natural gas is down 10% here right now. So you can have the commodity move that much by that much, but the equities don't move as much now. And so it it just shows you as we progress throughout the year. Uh, yeah, the commodity is going to be volatile, but I think these equities are going to not nearly be as volatile, just given the lack of leverage that all of them have, have paid off over the last couple of years. Yeah, I, pre- I appreciate that. But when it comes back to, get back to our, our own backyard, what are you seeing or what are some of the, you know, the oil and gas, the, the, the decision makers, the leadership teams, the CEOs that you're talking to? Like, what's our rig activity or did they, is, is there confidence in the sector? Like, do we still have a lot of drilling programs that are kind of looking good for this year? What are you seeing kind of here in Alberta or just Western Canada in general? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, for Western Kent or for for Alberta, uh, things are things are looking pretty encouraging here. Okay. You know, um, you're seeing rig counts still move up slowly, but you know, methodically here, saying let's not overdo it. Let's let's all meet downtown. Let's make sure we have conversations in terms mm-hmm. of how much are you growing company A, how much are you growing company B here. Let's not overwhelm the systems in terms of the pipelines. And so I think there's a lot of more communication, a lot more actually sharing of information than what we've really ever had before, just to make sure we don't make the same mistake that we saw back in 2018, where the differentials really blew out. Um, so that's that's for Alberta and Saskatchewan. You know, in, in BC, there's a bit of a nuance here. And, and you know, we're, I think that as we, as we say this right now, um, there's the Supreme Court ruling with the Blueberry River First Nation group up there where, okay. you know, the, you know, the B.C. government was really trying to work with indigenous groups and trying to find reconciliation. So as a result of the Supreme Court ruling that happened about, you know, 18 months ago, uh, there's to be no more wells being drilled in B.C. And so you've seen the rig activity really start to fall in B.C. here mm-hmm. as it starts to get worked out. But ideally, you're probably looking at sometime in early, t- you know, in the next few months here where there's going to be come an agreement and then you can start to see a bit more expansion. So okay, there's pockets of um, variability, uh, but for the, as a whole though, it's, it's still pretty encouraging what we could see, you know, hopefully, you know, once we see resolution with the blueberry river, uh, we start to see some LNG agreements going forward and some additional, you know, FID here that really is going to get the, um, you know, really expand our LNG here off the West coast and Canada here as well too. 
again, can't not touch on it, but access to markets, pipelines, ability to get our product out. You could be in any business. If you can't get your product to your customer effectively, it's going to hurt you. How much is that still a story? You don't hear the pipeline conversation as much. It's maybe just fallen out of favor in the media as it was even a couple of years ago, or like probably for many years. How much does that play a factor for you when you look at just Western Canada and that what seems to be a constant challenge for us? Yeah, it, it, it is a constant challenge. It, and it, it will forever be a constant challenge. <laughs> I think there's a, just an acceptance that there's to be no more pipelines built here in Canada. I think that's just, a, a, and I talk about oil pipelines. We have TMX going forward. That's supposed to be still scheduled here for late 2023 to come on. And as you start to, you know, increase that capacity from 300,000 barrels to just under 900,000 barrels, you know, you are going to take up, uh, a lot more new excess production that was starting to see some of these differentials blow out between what we sell our product here in Canada versus the U.S. So that should help later this year as you start to fill that line. But at the same time, too, uh, it's just it's just this is just an acceptance. We cannot really grow this space in any more than we already have. And so instead of trying to focus on growth, let's try and focus on, you know, being one of the lowest cost producers and the most ethically sourced oil and gas. And I think okay, that's where. Um, ultimately that's where a lot of these companies have actually seen um you know their share price perform quite remarkably as they've made that shift in terms of uh instead of growth let's focus on yeah you know being low cost and 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 being very very profitable which arguably in the past wasn't necessarily always the mandate that the energy sector took on let's just more more Mm -hmm. more grow 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 not always about profitability and again we're talking in broad strokes of course there's always outliers but you certainly yeah (laughs) if if oil and gas could just avoid being the boogeyman uh they would just love (laughs) that and i think that's ultimately um what it comes down to and now a message from one of our valued partners Today's show is brought to you in partnership with International Justice Mission. Thank you to Philip Calvert and his team for the incredible work they do to bring awareness to the global problem of modern-day slavery. I'm proud to share with my audience that I formalized my relationship with IGMs for becoming one of their Canadian ambassadors. Why? Because I believe we can end slavery in our lifetime, and I want to use my platform to be part of that mission. For many of you, hearing that statement may be a rallying cry. For the rest, it may be a moment of, wait, what? Slavery? Is that even a thing? For me, up to 12 to 18 months ago, it was the second. I did not even understand the problem or that it existed at the scale that it does. Currently, there are over 40 million people affected by modern-day slavery. 40 million people. After a chance meeting with Philip Calvert, National Director of Development for IGM Canada, my eyes were open to the reality that poor people face the world over, a reality of violence that stops them from ever moving forward in their life. At first, this made me uncomfortable. Then it made me downright mad. But then it gave me hope. It is support of groups like IGM that will allow us to reach the goal of any slavery in our lifetime and give hope to people who may have none. I know this can be an uncomfortable conversation, and that is okay. That's why we're going to go on this journey together. Stay tuned as we host guests from IGM who will help educate us, as well as upcoming events that where we can meet the amazing people that make the work they do a reality. Please join me in supporting this incredible organization by visiting and donating to their cause at www.igm.ca. We will only succeed in any slavery in our lifetime if we work together to make a difference. Thank you for listening. And now back to today's good old fashioned chat. Yeah, back to uh, who's telling the narrative, right? You know, and I've lots, lots of friends working at SEPA and some of the regulatory and the challenges with some of the um, naysayers is uh, they can say whatever they want about the sector and almost kind of get away with it where the sector itself is very tied to facts, science and reality. <laughs> 
yeah. What, what yeah. was it was his comment instead in a quite bitter over a scotch i believe uh tone yeah. um <laughs> you mentioned earlier just the role russia ukraine the conflict is playing in you know global the global story around energy even the role china's playing recessions in those markets conflict what do you see if we talk a little bit more on a kind of a macro kind of global scale when you think about the things that are going on in the role opec is playing when you said the the king of saudi arabia doesn't know that's an interesting comment to even say for you know a group that that has their has their hand on on a valve an a valve maybe not the valve anymore <laughs> mm-hmm. no it, well they got their hand on the most important valve i yeah. think ultimately <laughs> yes, they totally. they still can control OPEC, but it's it's a it's a big prisoner's dilemma here that everyone's kind of facing and just kind of pointing at everybody else saying, "Are you going to grow? If you're going to grow, I'm not going to grow, and if you're not going to grow, then I am." Like it, it goes back and forth here, and it's very circular. And I think that's the one reason why I think there's some probably some stability here because as every lot of these companies were trying to come up with their capital budget here for the year, uh, you're looking at the commodity price saying, "Wow, this is really." interesting look how high oil prices are here let's really go spend a lot of money but we've all seen this story before here we've all everyone's been through a cycle multiple cycles potentially and they're saying you know what as soon as we bring on this new if we increase our spending we bring on more production we're going to bring on that production just when commodity prices are collapsing and you know what we're not going to fall into that trap one more time and so when you saw prices jump with the russian invasion everyone was thinking oh this is only going to be three months maybe at the most six months here. No one, I don't think it was expecting it to be last this long. And as a result, uh, just that unknown, that no unknown factor here, everyone just said, you know what, I'm just going to just sit on my knees or sit on, sit on my hands and, and not do anything. And we'll kind of just have a low to no growth program going forward. And it kind of worked to work for the stock. So I think they're still kind of looking at the, the Russia situation and saying, do we grow into this? Do we not? You know what? Let's just, Let's just kind of just wait to see where this goes. And when you see the volatility, as like you've seen today here, even uh, this volatility in the commodity price really just keeps a lot of board uh, and, and and management boards uh, just kind of just sitting saying, you know what, let's just not do anything. And and so when you look at, you know, whereas like two thirds of your oil supply comes from democratically, you know, elected, you know, you know, mm-hmm. countries and and uh, and companies there, where you got an, a you know a board who's actually going to make decisions based on the commodity. And when you see this volatility, they really re- they they slow back on their growth, and uh, it goes back to this is different here now versus where it was ten years ago, twenty years ago, where you know there is a an understanding that yeah, you know what, we probably are going to hit peak demand. Let's not bring on supply. We don't know if we're going to bring on the supply and what type of commodity price environment, and that's why. The commodity actually could actually stay elevated for a lot longer than I think anybody actually is is, is kind of appreciating here today. Okay, no, I, I appreciate that perspective. When you talk about peak demand and, and you know those things have been again, I always I really like what you said about hey, we can't just look back to what it was ten years ago and expect a repeat and go oh well this is what happened then. It is things have changed and it and it is different. When you talk about peak demand and also start to look at the electrification and that movement and look at alternative energy sources. How much you know for your perspective do you look at? the other other ways that we can potentially and are moving slowly to provide alternative energy sources how much does that play into this versus be it the energy sector being oil and gas uh, fossil fuels being in their own little bubble and almost self-regulating against wind solar you know modular nuclear electric evs everywhere that kind of a movement how do those all play together for you or how much is that something you look at uh, while looking at these uh, you know proje- projecting the future mm. 
You know, it, it's an interesting question. And I think, um, I think anybody in oil and gas, if you talk to them saying, what's your view on solar? What's your view on renewables? Mm-hmm. They're pro solar. They're pro wind. They're, they're pro all energy sources here. And I think it's not us versus them. It's for sure. Bring it, bring it on here as well, too. It's, it's, I, I don't, I don't think it's, um, it necessarily, like, I, I think we're all in favor here as just, you know, yeah. humans kind of thing that, yeah, we want a better planet here. And if we can bring on more renewables, that's, that's great. If we can get EVs, that's great. I think it's the change in regulatory pace, um, that when you make capital decisions that, that suddenly get that capital decision gets changed here. And I think that's the, where the frustration grows with a lot of executives turning. We thought we could play in this, you know, this type of sandbox here yeah. and then suddenly got changed. And then suddenly that's what is the frustrating part with I think a lot of executives have. The other thing, though, too, mm-hmm. is just and just from the analyst side is we hear all the nuances. We hear the news. We have we hear the regulate regulations. But if you look at, um, I, you know, it's, it's, I have an interesting chart. and I don't know if you can maybe show it in, in, the, in the podcast here somehow. But uh, we look at the EIA. This is the, you know, the big global, you know, um, you know, energy advisor here for the U.S. Uh, you know, they have a budget of $300 million and they come up with their annual forecast of where do they think electric vehicle sales are going to be? Where do okay. they think oil demand is going to be? And for every year they do this out, you know, 30 year kind of forecast. And you kind of look at their forecasts going back, you know, the last decade and they continue to revise their electric vehicle um, sales downward every single year since 2010. It's just, it just doesn't catch on nearly as quick and their oil demand always gets revised up higher here. It's just, we're just using a little bit more oil than we thought. And actually Interesting. every household is just using a little bit more energy. So, um, you know, we thought, oh, we're getting more efficient here with energy. And it's like, actually it's going the opposite way. You know, everyone's getting a second refrigerator. They have deep freeze. Everyone's getting air conditioning now. Like but you look at Calgary here, I would say <laughs> yeah. 30 years ago, how many people had air conditionings now? And now I think almost every new house that's being built has an air conditioning. So that's a really that's, good, that's a good example of the, so, the, the stuff in our daily lives that you don't realize, but on a scale that all contributes to more, not less. That's right. And so yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, like, hmm. so we need more ultimately. So all the, what they've really found here is all the incremental energy that's come on from solar and wind. That's only really supplemented the additional uh, energy use that, that, uh, you know, your daily households are actually using here. So that's where you kind of look back and uh, yeah, I know there's this fear of peak oil demand, but it really hasn't turned over nearly as much as I think we yeah, would have yeah, thought yeah. it's, it goes, I'm going back to the cigarette example here. We thought we understand cigarettes cause cancer. Everyone's going to stop smoking here, but you look at, especially the rest of the world. Yeah. It's cigarette sales have dropped dramatically in North America, but there's still actually, we're growing, you know, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're going to see with oil demand is, yeah, we're buying our electric cars, um, but you're not seeing that globally here, that, that slowdown in, in oil demand. I think actually a good example, I'm just going to go to Norway for, um, as, as uh, you know, for example, they're, um, they're, they're, they, they sell more electric cars as a percentage than any other country. They sell about, I think it's about 75% of new car sales last year were electric vehicles okay. just through all the subsidiaries and, and everything else and, and the taxes if you buy like an internal combustion engine. But their oil demand has barely fallen here. And it's just a matter of fact is, yeah, we may be selling new cars, but there's still the amount of cars that are still on the road because I'm still going to drive my 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 
internal combustion engine here for another 10 more years though even though i bought it a couple of years ago i'm still it's still yep. going to be on the road for another 10 15 years here and then um you know with you know people more people flying and and uh you know more you know amazon packages being delivered like it's just <laughs> there's just there's a whole bunch of your oil demand is still and tra- miles traveled is still going higher here for everyone it's such a great example of like a true savings can be such an illusion because it just gets mis- displaced to somewhere else. <laughs> right. I, yeah. I, I yeah. don't drive to the store anymore, but that's okay. That delivery van comes to my house three times a week, but I'm not driving. But the that's Amazon, right. yeah. the Amazon van is idling in my on my street. Like I live in Martaloop, a high density neighborhood. That's there's they're often competing for parking between DHL and Amazon and everybody <laughs> trying to get to yeah. my to get to my neighbor's house with yeah. their packages. But you know, you might see yourself as like, oh yeah, but my EVs in the grass charging. And I'm not adding to that footprint, but I've just moved it to somewhere else and, and on the board. And I do love, you said energy security. It's so easy. I also believe this is a bit, I think, North American arrogance. It's easy to talk about cutting back while you have everything that you want and need at your fingertips. Yeah, but the rest of the world right. doesn't have that. <laughs> energy abundance there's, or energy security. <laughs> there's, um, I can't remember where I saw this chart though, but it was just talking about your GDP per country per person. So, you know, we talk about, you know, mm. the GDP per U.S. is, you know, $60,000 per person or something. And someone in China is only 2000 But as you start to move up that threshold, um, and I can't remember the exact marks, but, you know, once you go from like 1000 to 2000 you go from a bicycle to a scooter, and then you go from a scooter to a car. And then yeah. eventually when you hit a certain threshold, then you start flying. Your population starts flying a lot more, which is a lot more energy intensive. And as you start to get on those thresholds with a lot of these, you know, other other countries that are still in that low GDP per person, uh, that's that's where this energy use is really on this inflection point here where hmm. we'll, we'll take as much energy as we, we possibly can. I go back to, you know, even... Um, you know what OPEC wants is they want stability in commodity prices. Either they don't want it going too high. Uh, at the same time, too, they don't they want to put a floor in it. Um, but when you have just more and more energy use, yeah, bring bring on the solar, bring on the wind. This is all beneficial for for everybody. I think the biggest ask that oil and gas companies have is just stop changing the rules so often <laughs> every year here, just for political gain, almost in a way. I think is is the is the big one. Well, we can't not talk about it. The federal versus provincial, like some of the rules that are, you know, that create that instability where nothing will push money out of a market. Like, I'm not sure what the next year is going to look like or if they're going to change the rules on us halfway through the game. How much does that play a factor for you, even in, you know, your advisement and the role you play of looking at, hey, where do we think the federal government's going to go on X? You know, like, hey, we've kind of resolved ourselves. We're not going to get a pipeline built ever. Those types of things. Like, again, how much of your day is spent trying to, you know, or working with your cohorts that focus on the expertise on where the government's headed, <laughs> provincially or yeah. federally? You, you, you try and think this is it. This is the last regulation. But you kind of have some <laughs> yeah. viewpoints. Okay, what's the federal government, you know, focus on climate, climate goals, energy is clearly going to be a part of that. So I can, like, there's probably five or six different mandates that all have the same end goal in terms of reducing methane. So which ones do we have to be a part of? It's just, it can, it can kind of get somewhat burdensome after a while here, but no, you know what, there's an acceptance. Yeah, we need to reduce that. So let's go ahead and, and, and do that. It's um, in terms of the pipeline, like a lot of, they just don't want, if, if oil and gas could just stay under the radar for everybody, I think that would be, you know, they would, they would be very happy with that. And, you know, and so it's, it's sometimes to, you know, as an Albertan um, versus someone who covers the sector here as well, too. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the royalty regime that, um, 
you know, the NDP brought in back back in 2017. I think that was, you know, one of the biggest regula- regulatory, you know, concerns that a lot of guys had as well, too, with, you know, w- what is a, what does a new royalty regime mean? And I, you know, uh, you know, speaking um, as an Alberta, uh, as an Albertan, you know, th- this royalty regime actually could look quite, quite strong here now in hindsight. Like it, it was very um helpful once we got the details of it where you only you only pay a five percent royalty if commodity prices are low that was significantly mm-hmm. helpful uh during the downturn um uh, but now uh as these oil sands projects are paid off and these companies pay off their wells very quickly within a few months that royalty rate jumps to closer to 30 40 percent depending on you know a okay. few other factors here but you look into 2023 2024 the alberta government is going to bring in you know 20 30 you know, billion plus dollars worth of royalty revenue, way more than we've ever had, you know, before. And so you look at, um, you know, you, you know, the, 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 uh, the election coming up here, you can, you can see, you know, Calgary, do you guys want a new stadium? Sure. You guys want to expand Deerfoot? Sure. You get like, it's just, there is, you know, mm-hmm. no more gas tax. Sure. Kind of thing. But we, we have the money now just given these royalties that are coming in. So yeah. it's, it's interesting dynamic as an Albertan, um, you're going to actually enjoy these, 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 this regulatory framework that's in place. But at the same time too, as an oil and gas operator, you're quite frustrated. So, it, but Ugh, interesting. Uh, yeah. it's, just, it's just kind of, you know, ultimately my goal in, in all this is understanding, is there more money coming into the sector or out of it? And when you talk to okay. different investors, they are more inclined to believe that the real, the regulatory framework, uh, and all the rules are, no, are are not going to change as much as they once before. You know, before okay. it was every day in the Herald, the Globe and Mail, there was always <laughs> a negative article about oil and gas, about new regulations coming. They've come, they've accepted the fact that that's already in the market. We can come back in the sector here now. Interesting. I appreciate that. And it is the it is that balance. Like, how do we make everybody happy, Jeremy? I don't think we're going to accomplish yeah. it on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but seeing some of that money put into things that make our province stand out, like a new stadium, like better roads, like all the things that are going to make us even more of a world class city as we attract more and more people to Calgary. And I would say, as the secret gets out, that you can buy a house for a third of the price of Vancouver or Toronto <laughs> for anybody yeah. who who decides the amount of uh, we work with some home builders here through my agency and the amount of. Um, Ontario area codes that show up in the lead gen is quite significant, you know, more so during COVID. It was a real big wave. It's kind of leveled out now, but I think some, to some degree, there is, there is an awareness on just the affordability and the, and the value that is created in this province for any people who want, who want to come here. And, you know, some of that money being put back into things like a new stadium. And, and like you said, stuff that the everyday individual who's not even involved with the sector gets to benefit from. <laughs> yeah. And, and it just goes back to some of the other guests you've had on your show, just in, talk, in terms of new capital and capital raises the ability that the government's going to be able to provide more tax incentives here for those type of industries to evolve and grow, I think it's yes. going to also, you know, greatly help here. So it, and it all, you know, stems from a strong oil and gas sector here where, you know, the focus has been on profitability and with those profits are taxes finally, uh, you know, really being paid in, in, in size here now, plus the royalties, plus all the spinoffs, uh, just from having people employed in this sector. And so it, it truly is creating, um, you know, a pretty, a, a, a pretty strong province here going forward. Which I, I yeah, I'm, I, I'm, well, you've got a bull and a bear on your uh, LinkedIn profile that I'm looking at right now. And uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm thinking, I'm feeling you're a bit more bullish on what's happening in, in, in Alberta going forward. Not to, not to pin you down. We will, we will listen to this yeah. six months from now and see how close we were to what we talked about. 
You know, um, I've been doing this for for 20 years, and this yeah. is the most optimistic I've ever felt about this ah. sector in terms of the management teams get it kind of thing. It's important. Okay. We got to have less volatility, less financial leverage, focus on profitability, less on growth, and really just finally truly create good value here. And 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 they're seeing with their stock price. So I, I think, I think uh, you know, an, an investor you know, I, I'm going to take his quote kind of thing here, but he said, you know, the good thing about oil and gas is they're selling a product where as soon as you sell that product, that the, the, the buyer, first thing he does, burns it. Next day he <laughs> says, hey, can I have some more? Next day he does, burns it again. <laughs> and it's just, it's like, it's that product that you just, can't help but use I, it. I do. I really, I really appreciate yeah. yeah, like fast moving consumer goods. I buy the drink. I drink the drink. I buy another one. <laughs> I, I yeah, yeah. The first thing they do after they buy it is they burn it. <laughs> yeah. I do like that. Um, just 450 companies, 70% reduction, roughly, you know, quick, quick math, 130, 30 some companies in the sector. You deal a lot with large, large scale global investors. Are they buying a basket of stocks? Are they looking to individually pick? Um, if I'm a retail investor and I'm looking to get into the sector, and I'm not asking you to name names, I'm not going to put you into that kind of position. Mm-hmm. But you know, what approach would an individual listening to this? If I'm at an institutional level, that's obviously very different. But if I'm an individual going, yeah, I have been involved in the sector. I've maybe sat on the sidelines because I believe the rhetoric. I, you know, the reports of my death were grossly exaggerated, which I think the energy sector was, was very true. How would you recommend someone to really approach looking and going? I want to get back in. I want to get involved based on everything they've kind of heard us talk about so far today. Yeah. So where where the you know the stocks that typically will do well is when you get capital coming in, and there's been a lot of institutional funds that have been on the sidelines for the sector for several years. Those investors are starting to come in and those investors are typically buying companies at least a billion dollar market cap or more. So there's probably about only 30 companies of that. They're part of the TSX composite is what they say. And uh, to be part of the TSX composite, you need to be about that billion dollar, you know, just over a billion dollars just to, to be part of that. So that's kind of, you know, you know, number one, the second thing is just the companies um, you have to have, low leverage you know there's been too many times mm-hmm. in uh where portfolio managers realize i don't know where the commodity is going to go but you know what? if this company doesn't have any leverage i can still sleep soundly at night mm-hmm. because yeah. if the commodity goes to what it did back in COVID here just black swan event we seem we get black swan events every year it seems like <laughs> they're more frequently than they yeah. used to be yeah agreed <laughs> yeah so you get more is it is it, is it is it i don't know is that a gray swan kind of thing so we get more of these type of uh <laughs> swan colors here and and um but the, if they if you don't have the financial leverage you know you're going to be around to make sure you get into that up cycle as well too so those are kind of the two big things that, that guys are looking for is uh you know you know you know part of the composite and low leverage and ultimately you know probably the last one would just be do you have a track record of profitability and making good decisions here and that's ultimately they just want to sleep well at night they want to be part of the sector um, but they just want to make sure they can still, um, the, the, it's not going to be, uh, what they call a widow maker here kind of thing for a lot of these portfolio managers who went to the sector. I really appreciate your comment of like, yeah, things, if things are the same or better, this stock will pay off. But if there is a black gray or, you know, <laughs> miscolored yeah. swan event, they're not going to, they're not going to get taken out in the process, which is right. really what it gives you. And a lot of those companies that were able to survive that are thriving right now because they were there to clean up all the pieces and take advantage of the opportunities when things did turn around. And I know That's a couple right. companies yeah. that were buying when no one was buying and they look pretty smart now, but everyone thought they were crazy four, three, four years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, and that's, that's exactly it. And 
like you talked about job turnover here i think probably the most dangerous job out there is a portfolio manager investing (laughs) in the oil and gas like the the turnover and the volatility in terms of their performance is has been all over the place and as a result a lot of times they end up um you know losing their jobs and you know if they're going to come and you know slowly come back into the sector here they got a a lot of carnage that they're looking back on saying (laughs) what mistakes happened and i just not going to make that same mistake and as a result that's the type of things that they're that's the things that they're type of that they're looking for here which yeah which makes sense jeremy i really appreciate you uh taking the uh the cover off your crystal ball for us today and sharing some of your insights and and your experience for as long as 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 you've been doing it i uh, i see a potential regular cycle uh anytime a black swan shows up i'm going to call you right away you're going to be my first my first go-to contact (laughs) but i really appreciate it i know you do a lot of media and you're very much out there in the community if people want to learn more or kind of get in touch with you what's what's the best way we can all find everybody but what's your preferred for people to to get in touch with you Mm. yeah just twitter would be probably the best way so it's jeremy mccray cfa uh, is, is your handle is my handle. Um, and you know, we try and post some things, you know, every other day or so just in terms of little nuances that are going on with, you know, oil prices flows into the sector and, um, you know, trying to have pretty much just original pieces going out every day. So Jeremy McCray, M-C-C-R-E-A, C-F-A at, uh, at that's it. <laughs> nice. I, I appreciate yeah. the amount of effort and energy that takes to have like fresh qu- quality content on a daily basis. That doesn't, uh, for anyone who creates content, even on the side of their desk, that, that, uh, that doesn't happen by itself. <laughs> you do, and yeah. I'm assuming you got a good team around you too. Cause that, uh, having current, it's a noisy sector sometimes with like, what is actually real good news to, to, to capture versus what's noise. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, and that's, that's what's helpful being in the research group is you have access to thousands and thousands of, um, you know, subscriptions that cost you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars here. So it's easy to kind of compile and, you know, summarize. And so that's, um, you know, so, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's what we do at Raymond James here. So, and, 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 you know, at least gives uh, an edge in terms of investments in terms of, uh, for, for, you know, for a lot of our clients here. Which I appreciate that. Jeremy, thanks for the time today. Thanks for the chat. Thanks for the insights. And uh, I really enjoyed it, man. Thanks. I appreciate it. Mm. No, thank you, Tyler. Really appreciate it too. Take care. Ciao.